This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plains FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz. to the first edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection for 2022. It is presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio, Plains FM 96.9. The programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is repeated on Monday, two weeks later at noon. Hi, I'm Heather Craw and today I have Helen Baker with me. I hope you had a good time at New Year and that things so far have been going well with you. Omicron is taking hold here at the moment, so we have a few more restrictions. I know it's for our own good, but it is a bit of a nuisance. Concern is being raised that when the ferry Hamnavo, which runs between Stromness and Scrabster, is taken out of service for maintenance for two weeks on the 31st of January, that there is to be no replacement ferry. This coincides with maintenance being done at Scrabster Harbour. The ferry is a vital part of Stromness life, and without it they feel abandoned. During the dry dock period, North Link ferries will operate a revised timetable on the Aberdeen, Kirkwall and Lerwick route. 
providing a daily north and south sailing into Kirkwall. Pentland ferries will be running as usual, from St Margaret's Hope to Gills Bay, but in winter, with bad weather, quite often the Churchill barriers are closed, and this would mean that passengers could not get to the ferry. It certainly is going to be a problem for those two weeks for everybody. Mm. I was saddened to read the death notice of Anne Cormack in the Orcadian recently. Anne and her husband Alistair published a magazine called The Orkney View for 17 years from 1985 to 2002, to which I had subscribed. I did enjoy the articles, stories and poems, which were all usually of local content, and I did miss it when they stopped publishing in 2002. Yes, that's very sad. Mm, isn't it? it was a good magazine, actually. To miss yeah. a magazine. Mm. I think a similar one was a Shetland Life yeah. one. That yeah, it was similar. Too, yeah, yeah. And that yeah. was a shame. Yeah, I still have got all the magazines that I got, so I mm. <laughs> don't think I've got the whole hundred. But mm. The Orkney Island Council is warning people about the repercussions of abandoning vehicles across the county. It is an offence to abandon a vehicle and the council has powers to deal with this unsightly problem. They may remove and dispose of the vehicle, and they can and will recharge the registered owner. Abandoned vehicles are unsightly and dangerous. It is important when selling a car that the V5C form is completed to confirm proof of ownership. It's worth remembering that it is an offence enforceable by the DVLA, to have incorrect registered owner details. Mm. A Christmassy tractor cavalcade brightened winter spirits, raising more than £55,000 for two Orkney charities. The money raised is being donated to Clan Orkney and the Orkney MS Therapy Centre. The generosity of the Orkney public and beyond demolished the original target of £4,000. Stephen Sinclair, who jointly organised the run with Graham Nicholson, said, It's been absolutely unreal. We've been absolutely overwhelmed by the generosity of the Orkney public. Under normal circumstances, a troop of tractors tearing through town and countryside might have raised a few eyebrows, but not so for this fundraising spectacular. Instead, the convoy of 158 agricultural vehicles was met with much fanfare, as people lined the streets to greet the seasonally decorated processions. And they were, they all had decorated with lights and everything. Yes, they must have been rather fun to see. Yeah. And once again, the island has about done themselves with donations to charities. Well done. Mm. Mm. At the moment, wind farms seem to be to the fore. In Shetland, worker numbers at the Viking wind farm are set to reach 300, and they have foundations laid for some of the turbines. In Orkney, there are plans to build a multi-billion pound wind farm to the west of Orkney. I mean, that's an awful lot of money, isn't it? Multi-billion pound, yeah. Yes. Mm. There are many sites around Orkney that are being investigated for wind farms. If they go ahead, it will mean work for Orcadians and Shetlanders. It will also mean money coming into the islands. Mm. Yes, I've got sites all around... um the island and the sea. Mm. And I think it's a bit like the oil boom. I think this could bring quite a bit of money into the islands too. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Now, the next couple of items are from a book about Orkney and Shetland that I found online, and it was written in the 1800s. 
They bleed their cows hair once or twice a year and they take the blood and boil it, thickening it with a little oatmeal. Then they pour it into a vessel and eat it with a little milk. This was food I did not admire, though curiosity induced me to taste it. I don't think I would ever taste it somehow. No, <laughs> no. That deer existed in prehistoric times in Orkney is clear from the immense number of antlers that have from time to time been found amongst the animal remains that are scattered everywhere here and there in the peat throughout the islands. But that they had become extinct by the Norse times is almost certain from from there being no mention of them in the islands in the saga. Though we read of Giles Rognevald and Harold going over to Cathness to hunt red deer and reindeer. The late Mr. Heddle of Melsetter introduced red deer some years back into Hoy, but as they would not keep out of the cultivated land and were constantly swimming off to other islands, the present proprietor has had to shoot them down. One stag in particular is said to have swum as far as scale, and after spending a fortnight or so in the old hunting grounds of the Giles of Ork, Bursi, set sail again for Hoy. He is also said to have once landed in the island of Flotter, and so frightened the inhabitants that some of them took to a boat at once for Scapa and rushed into Kirkwall to announce the arrival on the island of the devil, horns and all. Oh, dear. <laughs> mm. Sheep, as might be expected, were the subject of many regulations in Orkney. Every owner had his own sheep mark, which was registered with the bailey of the parish, and no one could use the king's mark. As is the case at the present day with the native sheep in Shetland, with which breed they were identical, all sheep in Orkney were rude or plucked, not shorn, and no rueing was permitted before the date fixed by the bailey of each parish, for fear anyone might mistake his neighbour's fleeces for his own, nor could any rueing take place on Sunday. Wool, too, being an article easily stolen and almost impossible when stolen to be identified, all weavers had to prove to the satisfaction of the bailey from whence they obtained their raw material, and to hand in half-yearly inventories of all cloth made by them. And special acts were directed against all tiggers or hawkers of wool. Sheep dogs could only be kept by such sheep owners as were specially licensed by and registered with the bailey. And anyone guilty of keeping running dogs that ran from house to house, slaying their neighbours' sheep, were liable to special penalties. <laughs> yes, I think that still goes now. If you get a running dog into the sheep, I think it's um, death row, isn't it? Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah. This piece was written by Craig Gould, assistant archivist. The impact of Methodism in Shetland was greater than elsewhere in Scotland. Samuel Dunn and John Rabbi, under the tutelage of Adam Clark, arrived in Lerwick on the 3rd of October, 1822. By 1827, Clark could state that the Shetland mission was the most important and successful of all missions, either foreign or domestic. Yet established amongst us, Methodism could, according to Harold Bowes, boast of 1,435 members out of a population of 30,000 in 1831. In 1866, 
two-fifths of the Scottish Methodist population was located in Shetland. Therefore, Shetland and Methodism are heavily intertwined in memory and history. Records of the Methodist Church of Shetland are now available in the archives after much work to preserve the collection. They include minute books for 1893 to 1990, accounts, cash books and ledgers, 1851 to 1995, collection books, 1911 to 1991, class books and roll books, 1883 to 1989, pulpit notice, 1932 to 1990, Schedules, 1843 to 1986. Order of Service, 1934 to 1994. Directories and Reports, 1846, I mean 1946, that's the year I was born, that's a long while ago, isn't it, Uh, to 1980. (laughs) And Miscellaneous Papers, 1832 to to 1986. Right. Oh, that's a good lot for people to look up, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's, yeah. For family historians, the Register of Baptisms provides a fascinating resource. You can look at roll and class books, Sunday school attendance registers, donations made to the Poor's Fund, for example, for pew rental account books. One element of the Methodist Church was its use of ordinary members for various functions within the church. Laymen became trustees, stewards, class leaders, and local preachers. The records generated from these activities document social and religious history within Shetland. There are also numerous commentaries about the trials and tribulations of seeking to practice and preach in Shetland. The Reverend Clements writes about Borough Isle on the 6th of December 1948. Mm. Yeah. I was planned for the harvest service 10 weeks ago. I arranged an 8pm service so as to be able to take the Scalloway Choir with me, following the 6pm service at Scalloway. The choir rallied round, but after a lovely day the weather broke. A gale with snow and sleet blew up, and the boatman refused to take us. At the same time, a telephone message arrived to tell us that owing to the weather there could be no service. Planned for the next Sunday, but almost the same thing happened. This went on for nine weeks. The Methodist Church in Shetland has preached amongst the people, walked the narrow roads and crossed seas, has been part of the history and the memories of the Shetland population. For these reasons, this collection of records play a vital role in the continuing narrative, memory and history of the Shetland Isles and its citizens. And as it says, for family history, it's amazing. If you yes, it is, oh. isn't it? Mm. And this from the John O'Groats Journal, 1858. Lerwick, December the 4th. The Duke of Richmond's steamer arrived here yesterday morning after a fine passage from Aberdeen, though she had a very rough one going there. Singular to state, she brought us a rare sort of importation, namely... Four youths for confinement in our jail. They belonged to Orkney, were tried for robbery at the High Court of Justice and sent down here to suffer their punishment on account of the overstocked state of the Kirkwall prison. Three of them are sentenced to nine months imprisonment and the other to 15 months. They appear to have been unprepared for solitary confinement 
For when put into separate cells, they burst into loud weeping. <laughs> the new prison in Fort Charlotte is very comfortable, being well heated and cleaned, so that on this score they have no complaint, though otherwise their extreme youthfulness and other circumstances make their case not a little deplorable. The event has caused considerable talk here in Lerwick. Some say that it is not fair to make this place a penal settlement. Others, that our prison is small enough for local delinquents and others. That the youth should be sent to Papa Stone, where the Honourable Edwin Lindsay was for six and twenty years or else sent to Wellesley, a place said to be imminent for learning good manners. All right. Rocks are interesting circular structures, standing about 13 metres tall and built around 300 to 100 BC. They were built in Scotland, Orkney and Shetland. Why they were built, they are not too sure, and very few have survived. Shetland has the Brock of Musa and Orkney has the Brock of Gurnes. The numerous names of islands, those, lakes and places with the prefix of Burr, Borough and Burger both in Orkney and Shetland, point to the fact that the Norsemen on arriving found these brocks so scattered about. That been a matter-of-fact race in their nomenclature, both of places and people. They spoke of the islands, of brocks and vows of the brock. That they actually occupied some of them we know from the case of Musa in Shetland, in which a certain Bjorn, now this is a tricky one, Brynolfsson, <laughs> <laughs> spent his honeymoon when he fled from Norway about the year 900 with Thora Ralph's daughter. Musa was again occupied two and a half centuries later, much in a similar manner by that frisky dowager Margaret, Countess of Athol, when she fled from Orkney with Erland Ungi and was besieged therein by her son Jarl Harald, who objected strongly to his mother's conduct not merely in the case of Ireland, but others as well. Oh, gosh. <laughs> gosh. Perhaps she was going to miss out on some money or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that the original inhabitants of these brocks were very far removed from the mere savages that some people might fancy them to have been is proved by the implements which have been found. That they had flocks of domesticated animals is shown by the remains of the Celtic shorthorn sheep and swine, that they cultivated the ground and grew some sort of cereal produce by the numerous stone querns or hand mills, that they manufactured some kind of woolen fabrics by the stone whorls used in connection with the distaff and by the long-handled bone combs with which has been pointed out they must have beaten the thread of the weft together on the upright loom, that they understood the manufacture of pottery and that they used stone lamps, rude imitation of Roman models we also know. No celts or stone weapons have been found in connection with any of the brocks. Mm. They really are a bit of a mystery, those brocks, aren't they? Mm. they, they yeah. The Vikings may not have been as anti-Christian as they've been portrayed, according to Garth Williams, curator of the British Museum. At the beginning of the Viking Age, Scandinavia was primarily pagan, but the Vikings had many gods, and it was not difficult for them to accept a Christ god alongside theirs. 
Scholars believed, according to Williams, that the concentrated raids on Christian churches and monasteries had little to do with differences over religion and were more about the fact that they were places of wealth and little defence. In fact, once the Vikings settled and took wives in predominantly Christian lands, they converted to Christianity very quickly. Right. Mm. Now, this is the life of William Brass, son of James Gillies Brass and Isabella Bewes Brass of Kelton St Ola Kirkwall, Orkney Islands. William was born at Howe Cottage in Harry on the 27th of December 1882, soon after the family moved to Aberdeenshire, where James worked as a cattleman near Stonehaven. Another son, James, was born. The family had returned to Orkney when William's mother died of tuberculosis at Crook Rendell on the 7th of January 1893. William finished his schooling while living with his grandparents at Upper Alibister in Rendell and worked on their farm. William also joined the Orkney Royal Garrison Artillery. They were territorial volunteers and served three years. William left Orkney when aged 20 for the South Island of New Zealand. He became a guide for parties climbing its highest mountain, Mount Cook. It has three main peaks, the highest being 3,764 metres. A vast network of glaciers that wrap the entire mountain in ice and is subject to sudden storms that are long and severe. William demonstrated great strength and stamina. On February the 22nd, 1914, when an avalanche overwhelmed a climber and two guides on Mount Cook, William found the body of Jock Richmond and then shared turns with others in carrying him on his back down the mountain in the dark. Gosh, what a business. Mm. Incredibly, when William first attempted to join up in Christchurch, he was turned down as overweight. He weighed 154 pounds. However, he was successful when he tried again a few days later and enlisted in the Canterbury Regiment on the 17th of August 1914. William was appointed Lance Corporal on the 25th of August. He sailed from New Zealand on Transport No. 11 on the 11th of October 1914 and landed in Egypt on the 4th of December. William was promoted again a month later on the 4th of January 1915. Mm. William landed in the Anzacs on Gallipoli with the Canterbury Battalion on the 25th of April. William Brass's Commonwealth War Grave record and his New Zealand Army service records both give the date of his death as between the 25th of April and the 1st of May 1915. He probably died during the desperate fighting to stop the Turkish counter-attacks on the first day when troops of the Canterbury Battalion were thrown in at various parts of the line, including most of two companies, in vain attempts to hold the lower slopes of Baby 700. William's body was never found and identified on Gallipoli, so he's commemorated there with other soldiers at the Canterbury Battalion on Panel 74 at the Lone Pine Memorial. In commemoratives, more than 4,900 Australian and New Zealand servicemen who died in the Anzac area and whose graves are not known. William Brass is also commemorated on two of the Orkney War Memorials, those in Rendell and Kirkwall. 
Yes, I have a great uncle who was killed at Gallipoli, and he's his name is on the um, Lone Pine. Oh. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we have a bit of music as we once again we have come to the end of our program. Until next time, keep safe. Cheerio. Have your booster jab and wear your mask. Yeah. <laughs>